Amen. Well, uh, I'm going to begin this morning, as always, uh, by reading from Scripture. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read the entire chapter. May God bless the reading of His Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His inglorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we worship you this morning, because to think on all that you have done for us is to fill our hearts with overflowing joy. We thank you that though our sins were as scarlet, yet you have made us white as snow by washing us in the precious blood of your Son, your only Son, whom you love. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to celebrate your kindness to us together. Lord Jesus, we praise you, for in you we have life and hope and joy. In you, all our guilt is taken away. In you, all our sin is atoned for. Grant us grace to see and be happy in you, to see you and our new lives in you as infinitely more worthy and more satisfying than all the very best that the world has to offer. Help us thereby to abound more and more in love for one another and to show all the world that we are your disciples. Holy Spirit, have mercy on us today as we consider your word. You alone have the words of life, O God. Grant that we may have ears that are quick to hear, minds that are focused and attentive and ready to understand, and hearts that are pliable and humble and eager to respond in joy and glad obedience. Continue to grow us in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, 
and make us wise in ways that we may better cherish and enjoy the wonder of our union with Him. Have mercy on us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, it's my great pleasure to join you all for week three of this Cornerstone U series. I think I know everybody in here, but uh, for anyone who may not know me, my name's Curtis Scheidler. My wife Misty and I have been members here for about 10 years now. Uh, during that time, we've both been greatly served by the Cornerstone U ministry. Uh, speaking for myself, I often find that this ministry helps me to better appreciate, receive, and enjoy both the corporate worship session and the preaching of God's Word in our main Sunday service. Um, and I think that's especially true of this particular class. So Kent, I'm really thankful that you gave me the opportunity to share today. I'm super excited about this. Um, we've been talking during this series about the believer's union with Christ. It's one of the most important and simultaneously one of the most neglected promises that's found in the Bible. Um, we talk a great deal about justification, uh, about transforming and sanctifying grace, about God's gracious perseverance of the believer, and all of that is rightly so. Uh, but often I think we forget or simply take for granted that the way that all these things are deeply intertwined with, uh, if indeed they don't emerge directly from uh, the believer's union with Jesus Christ. Um, so I think that Kent did a wonderful job in week one drawing out some of the ways that Scripture proclaims this union to be the centerpiece of all God's promises. Um, and then last week he talked about how the believer's union with Christ works in two directions. Uh, not only are we in Christ, but Christ is also in us, uh, the hope of glory, uh, as it says in the New Testament. Uh, so much of the New Testament is geared toward helping us understand exactly how magnificent and how uh, fruitful and beneficial that is for us as believers. Um, that's why we read Ephesians 1 again this morning uh, and why Kent's brought it up before in this series. Uh, Ephesians especially is a book that is particularly deeply concerned with elaborating on the idea of the believer's identity in Christ. Um, more than, more so probably than any other place in Paul, you'll see the words in Christ repeated over and over and over again there. Um, so reading Ephesians would very deeply serve your soul as you consider this, uh, this topic. Um, uh, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin uh, says, about, says about this in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, If a man's soul would live but in these thoughts, what a mighty powerful Christian would that man be. Okay, so this is a doctrine that will serve your soul, and that's why I'm excited to talk to you about uh, that today. Um, so we've heard about how central and how fundamental our union with Christ is to the entire Christian life. And now that we've heard about that, what can we do about that now? Um, how can we, as Goodwin says, have our souls live but in these thoughts uh, so that our experience of this precious union would be a greater part of our, of our daily lives, a, a more mindful? How, how might we be more mindful of this union in our daily lives? Um, this is what the New Testament often means when it speaks to us of abiding in Jesus. That's the language that's used often in the New Testament. Um, so today, I'm going to talk to you about the art of abiding, the means of abiding, and the secret of abiding. And uh, all of this is coming, of course, from the Rankin-Wilborn book that Kent's been talking about, uh, Union with Christ. Uh, it's uh, uh, available in the bookstore, I believe, and if not, I'm pretty sure I know a guy who can get it there if we need it there. Um, 
So first, the art of abiding. Uh, this concept, abiding, like I said, is a really important one uh, in the New Testament. But that's especially true in the writings of the Apostle John. Uh, it's, uh, it's everywhere in the New Testament, usually in somewhat different language. Uh, but John uses the word abide over and over again, both in his gospel and in his, uh, in his letters. Uh, and as you seek in your own studies to, continue, to consider our union with Christ more deeply, you know, in addition to the letter of Ephesians, John's gospel and John's letters are a very fruitful place for you to focus your attention. Uh, like I said, he uses the word abide so frequently that it becomes really easy to track his thinking on the subject. Uh, for example, in John 15, Jesus says the following. Uh, in the first 11 verses of John 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay. Notice the repetition here. Like I said, obviously, anything that gets repeated some 10 times in the span of 11 verses, that's kind of important for us to understand, right? Um, so why does John talk about it in this way, though? Why is, uh, why is this concept of abiding, why does that strike such a deep chord with him? Um, well, Rankin-Wilborn suggests the following. Uh, he suggests that the word abide is important here because it suggests both an utter dependency and also a definite action at the same time. Okay, He says, On the one hand, the word, the word abide suggests resting and staying like a child leaning into his mother's embrace. Um, it's a posture of reliance for care and even survival, like branches depend on the vine, as Jesus said. Um, this is a relationship of utter dependency. Um, as Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. On the other hand, abiding is an action. Okay, here's something you must choose to do. Jesus commands us, abide in me. He commands us to rest in him. Like a dog commanded to stay, we must exert ourselves not to become distracted or move away from our master. Okay, now, as unflattering as we might find that last comparison to be, I think it's an entirely appropriate metaphor uh, for this paradox that we find throughout the entire New Testament. Okay, so it is certainly and gloriously true that our salvation is all of grace, as Spurgeon might say, and yet God's grace calls us to active, joyful participation in the life of Christ. So while we are rightly suspicious of any talk of our own efforts somehow endearing us to God or commending us to God for His salvific favor to earn His salvation, um, we need to bear in mind something that Dallas Willard says Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. All right? 
Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Okay? So our experience of union with Christ isn't purchased and is not secured by our effort. But neither is it something that will continually flourish and thrive as a constant source of joy for us if we neglect it, if we become complacent about it, if we become passive in our experience about it. Okay, as another writer put it, we must labor to be brought near. Okay, that's that paradox again. We must exert effort, but it's the effort of resting, the effort of being brought near. Okay, so how do we do that? That's really confusing, isn't it? Um, how do we do that? What practical effort can we make not to obtain this union with Christ, uh, which He has purchased and secured for us at the cost of His own death and resurrection, thank God, not, so not to obtain this union with Christ, but how can we, uh, what effort can we make to experience it and to enjoy it more fully and more mindfully and more immediately? Um, that bring, brings us to the means of abiding. Okay? And I think that whenever we talk about things like spiritual discipline or even means of grace, a lot of us get somewhat nervous or suspicious uh, for a lot of the reasons we just talked about. Uh, it's an all-too-easy temptation for us to think of these things as check boxes on a to-do list or tick marks on a scorecard, right? Um, but we need to remind ourselves that the effort we put into these things is not an effort of earning, but an effort of enjoying, all right? Not an effort of earning, but an effort of enjoying. Personally, it helps uh, it helps me to think of the uh, uh, of the disciplines I'm about to talk about, the the means of grace I'm about to talk about, not so much as tasks to perform, uh, but rather as channels or paths that God has graciously given us to follow that lead us to a place of deeper enjoyment in Him. Okay, um, these paths are what we would call the means of abiding. Uh, and these are all pretty obvious, so I won't spend a ton of time on them. Um, you can read more about them in Wilborn's book or in any of the other excellent volumes in our bookstore uh, on uh, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. Uh, Donald Whitney has a book, for example, that's very confusingly entitled Spiritual Disciplines of, uh, for the Christian Life. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of tough for, to understand what he's getting at, but it happens to be these things that I'm about to talk about. Um, so what are the means of abiding? Uh, well, we've got perhaps five, but four main ones, and the fifth I'm going to talk about in a, in a different sense later on. Um, but first, meditating on Scripture. Okay, Jesus said in John 15 that we read a moment ago, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Consider also 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, So we cannot overstate the importance of the Word of God for cultivating our sense of union with Christ. Uh, you, you want to be more united with Christ? Listen to Him. He speaks to us more clearly in Scripture than He speaks to us anywhere else. You want, to, you, you want to cherish and cultivate your union with Christ? Run to Scripture. Listen to Him. Hear Him. Okay, All of Scripture points to Jesus Christ, and the more we immerse ourselves in it, the nearer the Holy Spirit brings us to Him. Okay, So uh, we've got uh, meditation on Scripture. Persistence in prayer is an important means of abiding. 
Uh, Wilborn reminds us of Psalm 145.18 where it says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him. Um, now, that doesn't, that, obviously, that doesn't mean He's ever far away from anyone, right? Um, since God is omnipresent and since the whole earth is full of His glory, like we read in Isaiah 6, uh, there's literally nowhere we can go where, where we're ever going to be far from Him. Okay, and Psalm 139 reminds us of that, doesn't it? In verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Okay, um, so it can't mean that God is ever far from us. So what does it mean to say that he is near to all who call on him? I think it has to mean that our experience of God's nearness is almost always a function of our calling out to him, right? We will experience that nearness more and more to the degree that we call out for him like a deer that pants for the water so my soul longs for the living god right okay um this is why jesus so frequently encourages us to pray without giving up not because god needs that for any reason but because it draws us into a place of feeling and sensing and experiencing and enjoying his presence more Okay, we will enjoy the presence of God more. We will feel his nearness more when we cry out to him. Uh, and in a lot of ways, because that reminds us of our own helplessness, right? Uh, prayer is an, you know, properly done. Prayer is the, the moment in your life where you are most vulnerable. Okay, where you are, where, where you are more naked than you will ever be. Because you are before God acknowledging your need. And that pleases Him. And that draws you closer to Him. And helps you to experience uh, His closeness more and more. Okay? So we've got meditating on Scripture, persistence in prayer. This is a big one. Participation in corporate worship. Okay, this one and the next one, I think these are ones, these are means of grace that we tend to overlook. Uh, means of abiding that we tend to overlook. Uh, I think it's a lot easier for us to see some pretty immediate ways that reading the Bible and praying more habitually and consistently can change us uh, because those are things that all of us, pretty much without exception, can do every single day. Um, but participation in corporate worship, you know, we can't do that every day, really. Um, the, we, we do that mainly at our Sunday services and any other extra corporate gatherings that we call. Um, but it's but this is uh, but participation in corporate worship is just vital to our experience of union with Christ. For one thing, since all believers are united to Christ individually, that necessarily means that all believers across every age are therefore also united to one another, right? Um, for another thing, the corporate worship of God is literally the goal of our entire salvation. Right, a while back, I got to do a Cornerstone U message on Revelation, and one of the things I learned while I was preparing that lesson is that the book of Revelation is about worship as much or maybe even more than it is about anything else. All right? um, sometime I'd, uh, I'd encourage you sometimes to go through it slowly and take note of all the times it mentions corporate worship. Okay, It'll really open your eyes. Um, so corporate worship here is something that prepares us. Corporate worship here, now, is something that prepares us for the life that we will enjoy for eternity with God in heaven. Thomas Watson put it like this. He says, In prayer, we are like men. In praise, we are like angels. All right? Um, so participation in corporate worship is an important means of furthering and, and deeply experiencing our union with Christ. Um, 
And finally, in this, in this vein, we've got fellowship in the community of saints. Um, this is, again, vital for our experience of our union with Christ. And this goes beyond uh, the experience of corporate worship or the many different ways that we edify and serve one another uh, during our weekly gatherings. Um, this, by the way, is also a phenomenal reason for you to get involved in a community group if you're not already. If anyone's looking for a community group, I can't commend Neil and Monica Williams group enough to you. Uh, Misty and I have been incredibly well served by these precious people for several years now. Um, just lately, for example, they've helped us so much in preparing for the arrival of our newborn, and we just could not have done this without them. Um, and we, you know, we feel drawn near to God in Christ because of the way these saints serve and love us. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us why this is so important. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Okay? You just never know, guys, when God can use you to encourage a, a weak or suffering or doubting believer. You just never know. And when, when that happens, when, when God uses you to serve someone else in that way, or when God uses someone else to serve you in that way, you will, you will understand more of this union with Christ. You will experience it more fully and more immediately. Okay? And the reason for that is the simple fact of the matter is we were made to live in God-exalting community. Um, this was so at the beginning of time, which you can read about in Genesis. It will be so at the end of time for all eternity, which you can read about in Revelation. And it is the reason that Christ died to save us and to reconcile us to God in the first place, so that we can participate in fellowship with other believers. All right. Um, so this is an indispensable part of how we are going to experience and enjoy our union with Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. So a couple more point, a couple points more uh, before we before we finish up here. First, um, the secret of abiding in Christ, in as much as there really is one, uh, is that we need to constantly remind ourselves of the difference between union and communion. Okay. Um, our union with Christ is the objective fact that we have been united to Him once and for all by grace, through faith in His sin-bearing death and victorious resurrection. It's not something we can earn. It's not something uh, either ourselves or any power of hell or any scheme of man can ever change. Okay, um, It is done once and for all. But communion with God, communion with Christ, is another way of talking about our felt experience of that union, okay? And that is something that is necessarily going to fluctuate from time to time, and it's affected by any number of different things, okay? Sin, sickness, fatigue, laziness and spiritual disciplines, all of these things can distract us and hinder us from fully experiencing and enjoying our union with Christ on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, right? Um, but that's uh, but we need to be careful when our sense of communion grows dim. We need to remind ourselves 
um, that this doesn't mean that our union with Christ is ever in any way imperiled or threatened. Okay, we need to. Uh, we should be encouraged instead to press in further to the spiritual disciplines that we mentioned earlier, uh, trusting God to use the means that He has ordained to reawaken our sense of communion and our joy in Him. And I can. Uh, I can personally testify to the truth of that, guys. Um, you know, I, I know that some of you have heard this before, but a number of years ago, I just uh, became really depressed and uh, embittered and everything. And what was happening was I was in a situation at my job where uh, I, I was working at, you know, all kinds of crazy hours so that we couldn't really be involved in a community group at the time. Um, and then uh, uh, this this went on and on and on, so that basically the only uh, uh, the only nourishment I was getting uh, in terms of community with other believers was the Sunday service. Um, and as work got rougher and rougher, and I got uh, more and more jaded and bitter and stuff like that, stopped reading my Bible, stopped praying. I became more isolated. I became uh, more bitter and more. Uh, more jaded and everything like that. And I just went to Bill at the end of my rope one day and, you know, asked him for help. And like the first thing he said was, you know, brother, just get back into scripture. And he encouraged me just to read, you know, a single psalm a day. Um, and what I did was I committed to reading three psalms a day, thinking to myself, man, I'll show that stupid Bill. And uh, when I'm done doing this for a month or so, uh, he won't have anything to say to say to me and I can just quit coming here. And uh, that really did not work out the way I planned it at all. Because <laughs> it did not take me long enough. It did not take me very long at all to, to find that and to be reawakened to the reality of my union with Christ, which had never changed. Okay, I, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Gloriously so. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. Right? My union with Christ was in no way diminished. But my sense of it was because I had neglected those means of grace. Okay, and I learned a very important lesson there that we talk about trusting God. Really trusting God means trusting, uh, trusting the means of grace that He has ordained to make us healthy and happy in Him, right? You can talk all you want about trusting God, but, it, but if you want to be happy in Him without reading your Bible, without participating in church, you know, without worshiping, without praying, you're not going to be happy with him because you're not actually trusting him. Amen. Okay. So I can testify that to myself. It's like what David said. You know, when he sinned, he didn't pray, God, I've lost your salvation. I've lost your covenant mercy. I've lost your kindness to me. I've forsaken everything. Uh, instead, he prayed in Psalm 51 12, he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and with an upright spirit sustain me. Okay. So, so it was not. Uh, it, it was not his. Uh, it was not the objective fact of his uh, of his covenant love. It's not that it's not that God's covenant love had been removed by David's sin, but David's experience of God's kindness and covenant love had been hindered by his sin. Okay, does that make sense? All right. So uh, so so it's important for us always to to remember the the difference between. Our union with Christ, which is objective, it is forever, it is accomplished, and our communion with Christ, our sense of that union, our felt experience of that union. Okay, um, the, the best book I've read about this, uh, by the way, is John Owen, Communion with the Triune God, that is available in the bookstore. Um, 
like everything with John Owen, it is some tough sledding. I'm not going to lie. Uh, John Owen is as dense as five-day-old oatmeal, okay? But he is worth every minute that you will put into him, I promise you. Okay, so be patient and, and, and slog through it, and it will repay you a hundredfold. Um, the last thing I want to talk about um, is a sort of hidden path to abiding, a secret means, I guess, is, is one way to talk about it. Um, suffering is often one means that God uses to draw his people near to him and into a deeper enjoyment of him. Um, now, I separated this from the, other one, uh, from the other means of abiding because this is different, okay? Um, the, the means that we discussed earlier uh, are different in that Scripture everywhere encourages us to pursue and to seek those out, uh, right? It's always encouraging us to love God's Word, to cherish God's Word. Jesus reminds us to pray persistently. We're constantly encouraged to serve one another in the local church, not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves and so forth. Um, but suffering is something that God dispenses according to His sovereign will as He sees our need for it. It's not something Scripture ever encourages us to pursue for its own sake. All right. Uh, C.S. Lewis once likened suffering to a megaphone that God uses to cry out to a, uh, a deaf and distracted world about their need for Him. Uh, and I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, we can become so distracted. We can uh, become so deafened uh, by the world, and not just by that, by specifically by our blessings, um, that we neglect God and and uh, that we neglect Him to our hurt. And sometimes, what God will do um, is that He will graciously and kindly and mercifully use suffering to reawaken our sense of uh, His kindness and His nearness to us. And again, that was exactly my experience, right? You know, I was so depressed and so bitter and so sad all the time, uh, right? Uh, and I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't ever pursue that for its own sake, but I can look back on it now and see that that was the kindness of the Lord to lead me to that place, to remind me, to show me how important it is for me to love His church, how important it is for me to love His Word, to spend time with Him in prayer, uh, to, to value these moments of, of corporate worship, okay? That was God's kindness and His mercy to me, and I will, I will be as thankful for it forever as I was bitter during the experience, for sure. Um, we need to remember, though, uh, and this is so important, guys, suffering for the believer is never a punishment for sin, because your sin, if you are a believer, has already been punished in the person of Christ once and for all. Okay, There is literally no more wrath for God to pour out on you because Jesus Christ has exhausted it forever. Praise God. Okay, So when you suffer, it is not uh, because God is, is, is wrathful against you. It is not because your sin has incurred His, uh, his, his hatred or en enmity. Okay? Um, instead, it is His kindness to us to bring to, to bring us closer to him it is scripture likens it to uh, it, it says he chastens the son whom he loves okay it's the discipline that he uh, that he sometimes brings upon us not because he is angry with us per se not because he is wrathful with us but because he loves us and he doesn't want us to persist in in things that will hurt us and destroy us okay it is his kindness okay one great, one fantastic resource I, uh, on, on this idea is Christopher Ashe's commentary on the book of Job. 
that's in our bookstore. I cannot commend that to anyone heartily enough. Um, it is a, you know, for one thing, it makes fantastic sense of a book in the Bible that is very difficult to understand. Um, but it also drives home what I think is the message of Job that sometimes, you know, that sometimes uh, believers who love God suffer for reasons they don't understand. Um, but that suffering is a path for them to know and to love God more and more, um, which I think is the message uh, of, of Job. Um, so I hope these things help. Uh, obviously, there's a ton more things that I could say about uh, all this. I think we're probably running a little short on time because my I was so nervous about saying too much about any one thing that we would go over. And uh, instead, I erred on the completely other <laughs> end of the spectrum. Um, but uh, I, at any rate, I, you know, we, you know, a hundred lifetimes would not be enough to plumb the depths of what our union with Christ, all, all that it is and all of its value and all of its, uh, all of its worth to us. Um, but I hope at least that this will serve you and encourage you to think more about this precious, precious doctrine. Um, before we pray, are there any questions or anything? Feel free to ask Kent anything. <laughs> no question is too small. No hour of the day too early. <laughs> All right, let's pray. O great Father, our God and our King, we thank you for making yourself known to us. We confess that we are so prone to forget the truth. We are so slow to hear. We are so unwilling to understand all that you have done for us and all that you have called us to be. Yet you are patient and kind and rich in mercy toward us and have given us the good news that though our sins be as scarlet, yet by the blood of your Son Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we may yet be made white as snow, justified and righteous and one with Christ in your sight. Lord Jesus, help us to grasp the magnitude and the wonder of all that you have done for us, all that you are doing in us. Pierce our hearts, which are so easily captivated by novelty and by endless distraction, that we might not forget the reality of your gospel or take our new life in you, that you have purchased at so dear and so terrible a cost, that we might not take that for granted. Help us to fix our eyes more steadily upon you that we might not become impressed or absorbed in our own good works or in our good deeds, but to rest in our union with you, to rest in you as you abide in us. Holy Spirit, continue to grow in us a hunger to read and to meditate upon your word, to persist in prayer, uh, to joyfully trust the means that you have prescribed for us, that we might grow in faith and in wisdom and in love. Help us to cherish this time of fellowship together with your body, your bride, Lord God. Have mercy on us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.